Welcome to Frankly Speaking with Lynn Franks and Friends. I am Lynn Franks, your host, and I'm delighted to be presenting this episode with my very close friend, Denise Lynn, the internationally respected healer, writer, and teacher who is Californian-based and globally respected. Denise has changed the lives of thousands and thousands of women and men all over the world, including mine, I may say. And her spiritual journey began as a teenager when she had a near-death experience after being shot by an unknown gunman. The revelations she received on the other side and the subsequent amazing healing of her wounds led Denise to eventually become the enormously respected transformational spiritual leader that she is known as today. In this episode, Denise shares her harrowing story and also leads us in a unique and incredibly powerful meditation. So sit back and enjoy. I am so thrilled to be welcoming here my very, very close friend, buddy, sister, Denise Lynn, who has been in my life and an enormous influence in my life for the last 30 odd years. So I'm Lynn Frank. This is Lynn Frank in Conversation with Extraordinary Women. And Denise is one of the most extraordinary women I know. So welcome, welcome, Denise, from Northern California. So what time is it with you? You're about 11 o'clock in the morning. Yeah, it's a beautiful morning here in sunny Northern California. And we had frost this morning. It was 27 degrees, which I think doesn't equate, but it's cold, which was really nice. And, and the cold. fires have stopped finally. Yes. <laughs> now I'm still in the cleanup mode. There was so much ash that somehow that ash is, it's fettered its way to the tiny little, tiniest little corners. So it may be months before I get rid of it all. Oh. But today is good. Just taking a day at a time. Day at a time. And um, well, it's been pouring with rain, certainly in my part of the world today. Not the nicest way, weather. But we are coming through as a number of, as a number of people have been describing and you and I have discussed into a very different time, which I know you've got lots of thoughts you're going to share with us a bit later. First of all, I want to talk about you and a little bit about you and me, because I have to say you are one of the most generous friends I've ever had in my life. You have truly uh, not only brought so much into my life, knowledge and experience, got me to do my very first workshop with you, which I'll never forget, which was called Passion. And when you went into your meditation, I, as always, lay on the floor, ready to receive, and you went, you're supposed to be holding the space. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, that was a long, long time ago, I have to say. And you introduced me to Hay House. And uh, we, I mean, we've had some funny experiences in our times um, going to other People's workshops, a very large man who shall remain. We went on Tony Robbins together. <laughs> I got an argument with him. You were straight outside making sure I was all right. Um, you have just been <laughs> amazing. And we've, we've had funny times and we've gone into, when I was living in California, when we obviously saw a lot more of each other. And although we don't see each other or speak so often now, because we have got a big time difference, um, as you have said, and as I've said many times, still the synchronicity in our lives is always amazing. And we have. The same birthday, although I have to admit you are younger than me, we are celebrating as always our birthday together. So that's great. And I am so, so pleased you're here. You have the most amazing following reputation. You've traveled all over the world. You have delivered workshops, talks, seminars, retreats to 
thousands and thousands and thousands of people. You've got 27 books out. Was it 27? No, 17 books, 25 countries. <laughs> and um, whenever I go on to anything you're doing, I just see this, this following of people that you have that have followed you, like I have so many years. So you were really my first teacher introducing me to the kind of different way of thinking, living, breathing, the sort of more esoteric way. And I was trying to think, how would I describe you? You're as an author, you're a teacher, but how would you describe yourself? Yeah, I guess I love the fact that people have gotten value from the things I've shared, but I've never looked at myself as a teacher. I've looked at myself as someone who is, I guess I'm on a quest, but it's a personal quest of finding what is valuable for me, what is allowing me to grow, to understand in a deeper sense of my place in the universe. And I've shared that with people and it's just, it's so wonderful that people get value, but I've never seen myself in that role. If I had to describe myself, I would say I'm not so much a seeker because I pride myself on finding. Some people are professional seekers and they never find, but I guess a seeker who finds, that doesn't sound very good, but yeah, that's... (laughs) Well, I sort of got the PR, so I would say you are a shaman. I know that you would never call yourself that you are because shamans create magic. And they connect with land and they use very traditional tools, whether they be drums, feathers, all the stuff that you, all the natural tools that you organically use um, and have used since you started your extraordinary career. Um, and I'd say there's lots of people now that go around ringing a lot of bells, calling themselves shamans, but you truly are a shaman. You're a space holder for so many others. I've had so many extraordinary experiences in your workshops. And of course, so have many, 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 many thousands of people. And I know because we're close friends as well, that you don't see just how amazing you are. And I see um, (laughs) some very young people who are now sort of holding workshops and giving themselves, unlike you, all sorts of of titles and roles. And And I look at you and you were doing this before anybody. You were doing ceremony. You were doing traditions. You were bringing in a whole new way of thinking. And of course, I, I mustn't forget when I went on one of your retreats after I first did a workshop with you in London, the first time I met you, having read about you in the paper. And I went to this workshop and I couldn't walk. I was so stressed out. I was on a walking stick. And this was 35 years ago or more. And I couldn't, couldn't even stand up. And by by the time we finished the workshop over two days, I was literally spinning around the room dancing to drums, forgetting that I even supposed to have a bad back. So I, I know and your transformational skills are amazing. And then I went over and joined you in Seattle and I took my husband and my two, my ex-husband and my two <laughs> children, who are now adults, uh, with another friend, of course, Johnny Roger. And we had a most amazing retreat with you uh, about two weeks in the, in the, in the mountains. Bad. Horseback wedding and river rafting and sweat lodge and drumming. Yeah, it was great. And jumping off rocks into tiny pools. I'm face your fear, face your fear. You can do it. And then afterwards, you told me that you had totally felt your fear too. But I, you got me doing things I never, never thought I would do. And it was an amazing experience for all of us. I think it changed our whole family life. And although my son changed after that, at that time he's about 14 or 15, I remember he, he went back to school in England and was talking about how he could move the clouds. And uh, <laughs> he got so many laughs, laughs back from friends that he stopped doing it, but he was totally into it. He totally, I, you are a shaman, there's no question about it. But tell us a little bit, for those who don't know your story, I'll shut up and, and you tell us your story because you come from a, 
a background of First Nation people, though you have brought up. So over to you. As you mentioned, my mother, not my father, but my mother is, um, or was, she's in spirit, was um, Cherokee, Cherokee Native American. And my father was of Scottish background, but I was not raised on a reservation. And even though my mother was raised in a, a spiritual tradition, she was a scientist. And I think in, in those days, if you were Native American, you were a second-class citizen. It was decades after the Blacks in the United States got the vote. Um, it wasn't even until, I think, 1967 that all Native Americans got the vote. So, so there was a lot of discrimination. So I think part of her focus on scientists was to get credibility. And so both my parents were scientists and they were atheists. And so I was raised, if you cannot prove it scientifically, it doesn't exist. And when I was 17, I had a little motorbike and I was, and we lived in Ohio, which in the Ohio is like the farming center. Well, not center, but it's a farming area in the United States, kind of in the middle of the United States. It's flat, lots of corn and soybeans. And I had a little motorbike and I'm putting along. And what I didn't know was I was being followed by someone. He, he was like a mass murderer. And I didn't know this guy. And in the kind of an isolated area of the road, he rammed into my motorbike. And I flew off the motorbike. I skidded across the road. And I was trying to get up. And I, I saw him turning around. I thought, oh, he's coming back to help me. Because I couldn't, I couldn't imagine why someone would hit me with their car. Because it seemed like he did it on purpose, which he did. And then he came back and he rolled the window down. And I saw him pull out a gun. And those, it's just like, it's slow motion. You know, everything seems to go so slow. And I couldn't understand why is he aiming a gun at me? This was Ohio. Very, it's like kind of maybe the countryside little town in England. You just don't expect that kind of thing. And he shot me. Um, some other things happened. I was eventually left for dead. And a farmer found me and took me to the hospital. And in the hospital, the doctors thought I'd died. And back someone who was in the waiting room said a doctor came out and said I died. I, I, I had find that hard to believe. But anyway, they had said, we lost you. I remember what happened. I remember leaving my body. I remember going to this place. It was so beautiful and radiant and familiar. It was like, oh my God, I'm home. I was so happy to be home in this sense of infinite love and not being separate from anybody or anything. Everybody here, we were all, we were all there. Even if your body's here, we were there and we were connected. And here's the crazy thing. There was a sense of being one, but also individual. And here I can't conceive of how can you be one and individual, but there it was natural and there was no time. Everything was now. I can't conceive of that here, but there it was like, of course, everything is now. But that was familiar. This was the dream. And then there was a voice. You know, hear about the voice that says, you can't stay. You got to go back. And I got yanked back into my body. It was really damaged. I lost my kidney, my spleen, and a drilling gland, a um, good part of a lung, uh, part of my intestines were removed, uh, part of my diaphragm was removed. Um, there's still a hole through my spine because the bullet actually made a hole through my spine. Um, it's about that big. You can still see it on the x-ray. And a six-inch tube was put in to replace the aorta. So they... They said, well, there's no way she's going to live. It was a miracle. She came back from the dead. But with all this damage, she's not going to live very long. But something happened on the other side. It's like inside of each of us is this ember. And it's an ember that remembers who we are. And it's also an ember that 
can activate healing. And it was almost like those moments, like the warm winds of heaven just kind of whispered over that ember and it became a flame and the flame made all the difference. The doctor said, it's a miracle because I start, I still don't have a kidney or a spleen or, you know, a full lung on that side. I mean, I'm still missing all the stuff, but something got activated. And I also began to see inner, what we call now energy. I didn't know what it was. I saw light around trees and grass and people. And I heard sounds and music other people didn't hear. My life changed. And I did in Ohio, little tiny farming community, there was no one to talk to. The couple of people I tried to talk to about this, they just said, well, you know, it's the drugs. But I knew it wasn't the drugs. And I knew what I experienced wasn't the drugs. So the awareness that came out of that was that, first of all, this reality isn't the only reality. And in fact, there is a greater reality that is, in fact, our home. And I think everybody remembers, maybe not consciously, but if you've ever had that longing and you don't even know what you're longing for, it's this longing. I'm going to suggest you're longing for home, and that's home. And everyone has this ember inside of them that can activate healing and inner truth and awareness. So from that point, I went on a quest. It doesn't mean my life was easy. I had had a lot of childhood trauma. Getting shot was nothing compared to that early traumatic family stuff. So it wasn't easy, but I had, I had strategies and an understanding that allowed me to continue forward. Like it wasn't easy. I had a couple suicide attempts in there. But at the same time, I knew there was a way to get back to that place. And I desperately wanted to go home. And I knew there was a way to get there without dying. Everything I teach, everything I do is creating sacred space so that you can get there and you can have that veil can be open and you can have that experience of being home and be here. I think it's important for people to hear that part of your story. And I also add in that in your search before you started teaching and healing and doing work with others, you, you were living in a, a, a monastery, Buddhist monastery for quite a Correct. time. You had the most amazing training. And I said this to you, we spoke the other day and I said, do you not feel that in a way uh, we and others, and particularly you, have been in training for what is about to happen now? It's almost like we chose to be born. You chose to come back into your body. Um, your 17-year-old self was told to come back because you had work to do. And I think for all of us, and I'm sure for everybody listening to this, because they, we all come together because we're brought together by this synchronicity and this energy that we don't even, we don't, we can't even say what it's about, but we're attracted to exactly where we're supposed to be. And that is all about coming to this moment now. So I'd like to bring that into the conversation with you now. I completely concur. And it started I don't know, it started early summer. I began to get images and I began to, this awareness began to grow in my dreams and in my meditations of this crack between the worlds. And it felt like this crack was widening and it was going to continue to widen for a while. And then um, in next spring, it was going to start to close. And the thing that was so powerful about the crack between the worlds is it offered us the opportunity, as I said, to be able to step through into those mystical realms in a way that we haven't been able to do before. And I would say it's not just me who's been in preparation for this time. I think we all have. Every person that is hearing us talk 
you have been in preparation. Your life experiences have brought you to this place. People say, it's been so bad. It's been such a bad time. But from a spiritual perspective, um, and the image I've been using lately for myself anyway, is if you imagine a savannah in Africa, and it's dry, it's parched, but there's a water hole. But the water holes become stagnant, and everything, everything depends on that water hole. And the first six inches, they look pretty clear, but the water is dying. And the, the crocodile gets in there and starts swimming through the water hole, and it looks terrible. It's all churned up, and, and it's, you know, it's chaos. And people have talked about this last year of being chaotic. You know, it's like with social structures and political structures and environmental structures and the pandemic and the economy, everything, it looks churned up and chaotic. But what happens with that alligator in the water is it aerates the water. And by doing this, it brings new life to the water hole. And when the water hole is alive, life is sustained. To me, we've had the alligator, the spiritual alligator has come through and just, it's thrown everything. Structures are falling down. Old beliefs are disseminating. Um, things that have been hidden are coming to the surface. But in from us, from a personal point of view, there is a spiritual opportunity because we are not separate from what's occurring out there. So I'm going to suggest that within you are old structures, old beliefs, old limitations that are starting to come to the surface to be skimmed off the way cream comes to the surface to be skimmed off. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And um, you were also the first person that I ever knew that was teaching about clearing clutter and feng shui and clutter <laughs> coaching. You've had huge amounts of people doing your workshops and courses from all around the world who now become coaches in their own right and soul coaching, which is huge part of your work. And I just thought maybe you'd like to explain about the soul coaching work that you've done because it's been so powerful, so powerful so many people. I think the soul coaching came out of my feng shui work. I wrote, I wrote the second book ever written in English about feng shui. When I wrote about it, no one had ever heard that word before. And um, I coined the word space clearing and wrote some books on space clearing. And now there's thousands of feng shui and space clearing books. So I began to, when I was teaching in Hong Kong is when I first heard of feng shui. And then every culture I spent time in as I was traveling in the native cultures, I would talk to the elders. Every culture had a form of how can we orient ourselves and our home? So not only are we at home in our physical house, but we're become home in the universe. So I wrote about these in a book called Sacred Space and later Feng Shui for the Soul. And then about Space Clarity, where I shared a lot of these native traditions in those books. And I began to certify people to do this for others. And again, I wrote the second book. So this was way back there when no one had even heard of this. And, but what I found is those practitioners, and I'll talk about myself, I would go in and work with people with the feng shui of their home and this, the energy of their home. But what I found is the key component was that interpersonal component, was actually creating a space for a person to tap into the truth of their soul. And the soul loves the truth. The soul loves the truth and the soul knows the truth. So rather than saying, oh, I can see you need this bagua is out of sorts and you need this and this and you start shifting things around, I would allow a person to go deep inside and find out what do I need? How best can I get there? What is my spiritual journey? What is my destiny? And when you would ask and answer those questions, then miracles would abound. So out of that, 
I created something called soul coaching where it was training people to be coaches, but not most coaches are like motivation, inspiration, you know, get the job done, get the raise, get the better job, which is great. It's great to have someone motivate you and inspire you. But for me, a deeper way of working is in a safe and sacred space, allowing your client to move into the stillness of the soul because everything, everything is there. You know what you need. You know what you need. And so that's where soul coaching came and I wrote some books on it and I trained, I don't, I actually don't train people to do uh, much way or space clearing or soul coaching anymore because I've trained some extraordinary teachers who are much better than me. So I've just kind of turned it over to them. And I love that. I think that means I'm a good teacher. If I train people to be better than me, I've done my job. So I don't take it as an insult that they're better. I take it as an honor. Oh my God, they're, they're doing so much better than I am. So there you go. Not that they're doing so much better than you are, is that you are constantly growing into new directions. And like <laughs> impatient Aries who love new ideas. <laughs> okay, you have said what I have added to your life. Let me tell you what you've added to my life. You are a rule breaker in the best possible way. And I have always, like, okay, in high school, I got voted nicest. Do you know what you have to give up to be voted nicest? Nice was my strategy, my survival strategy. It cuts away at your life force. It diminishes your life force because you're always trying to acquiesce to the needs of others. You don't do that. You don't give a heck. It's like, like okay, a little bit like the bull in a china shop where I would be, okay, I won't touch it. I'll be careful. I won't. And I'd like like this. And you're like, what the hell? I'm a bull. This is a china shop. And, and there were times when I would go, oh, my God, oh, my God, did she just say that? Oh, my God, oh, my God, did she just do that? But I realized you were inspiring me. You were inspiring me to like speak my truth and break the rules and care less. I still care a lot. I know you care, but it hasn't stopped you because people love authenticity. And what I found for myself as I began to, oh God, when was it? About 20 years ago, I got a cancer diagnosis and they said, we want to do surgery right away. And I said, no, I, I actually need time. I need a month just to process. And they said, we don't want to give you a month. I said, I need a month. And in that month, I did lots of deep, and I said, is it possibly not cancer? They said, no, it's cancer and you've got it in two places. I did a lot of deep, deep inner work. And the biggest thing I found that contributed to that cancer diagnosis was being polite, being nice. And I made a choice. It's like, that's it. I'm going to be a bitch. And I was like, you know, I really was embracing my inner bitch. And I went back a month later, they could not find any cancer. And what was amazing, I thought, I'm going to lose friends left and right. I got more friends and the relationships were deeper. And so it is true. I am nicer than you. I think you've toughened up, actually. You have amazing friends. You have an amazing life. And I would look to you as someone who would be strong, speaker truth and be deeply and profoundly loved. And I thought, you know, that childhood programming of thinking I've got to be nice. You know, I don't need to. And you, I would look at you and say, I would look at your amazing friends, your amazing life and think, hey, I can I can be this and do this. I will survive. We've also done some really fun things like gone to, um, I don't even know what to call them really. Well, I've got some health center where we go regularly when we 
when I was in California, we decided we'd go and detox together. We spent most of the time shopping, didn't we? What mile was you drink a whole lot of wheatgrass juice? You don't eat food. And you get a lot of colonics. And you go do a lot of shopping in the nearest shopping mall. <laughs> so you inspired me to shop because I was raised without her humility. And I would, I would get something and I would, if I would buy a piece of clothing, I'm looking at 20 years. It's just going to last me 20 years. You, I, I could remember going shopping with you where the pile would be so high. I couldn't see you behind the pile. You'd pile up on the counter. And it's like, where is my friend Lynn? It was the entire of the year. I know what you're talking about. It's when I stayed with you in Seattle and I did do a lot of shopping. <laughs> you you inspired me. You were the you were the flame to my wick. <laughs> it was a shopper waiting to come into being. I can't wait for you to come over and shop in my shop. Now I have a shop, which actually takes the temptation away to get, to do all the shopping because I've actually got the shop myself. So I love those candles. Are those candles in your shop? They're gorgeous. Uh, they are not actually in my shop, but we do have oh. a gorgeous candle. I've got the Steve candle in my shop. We do have amazing candles. Buttons, <laughs> <laughs> actually. You'd love it. So I wanted to talk to you about past life and the experience I had in one of your... Uh, workshops once, which wasn't past life, but the connection that I went into um, when you sort of took us into an altered state. I mean, past life regression, again, was not something you named. You never said, I'm going to now take you into a past life. But your meditations are so powerful that people would go and have connections with their past lives. Well, to take a step back about past lives, for many years I worked as a healer and I had a private practice on Union Street in San Francisco. And I was a pretty darn good healer. I'd get booked up to a year in advance because I was one of those healers. I'd like, you're here, put my hands on people. Uh, but at the time, I thought I was doing people a favor. I thought that was a really good thing to do, to take away their symptoms. Later, I realized that if a person doesn't go to the source, you could take the symptoms away. But whatever ignited those symptoms, whatever thought form or belief or past experience ignited or ignited those experiences, if you didn't go to the source, either that, those symptoms or other symptoms would come up. But um, I didn't know that at the time. I thought, oh, I have this gift and I'm helping people. But I remember a couple of times someone would come back and say, well, you know, I'll say, you know, my sore shoulder's back. And I'm thinking, it's been gone for a year. Why is it back? And someone had said, well, sometimes challenges come from early childhood. So I thought, oh, I'll take people back to early childhood and we'll see if we can figure out what the challenge is. And so I began regressing people back to early childhood, which was amazing because often we make decisions and judgments when we're like two and three years old that last their entire life. And there's ways to reweave them and rework them. So I thought I was taking a woman. She had ulcers. She'd been to everywhere. Nothing had worked. I was a last resort. So I took her back into what I thought was early childhood. And she said, my husband's enemies are poisoning me. And I'm like, I knew she'd never been married. I thought, what's she talking about? She'd spontaneously gone back to a past life where her husband had some very unpopular political beliefs. She knew he was wrong, but she was disempowered as a woman so that she felt disenfranchised. There was nothing she could say or do. He went traveling. His enemies came and they forced her to drink poison, which ate, ate holes in her stomach and killed her. And she died feeling a lack of power and disempowered. So in this life, she was in some situations at work where she felt disempowered, the exact same emotional feeling, and it manifested from the same way it did in that past life. Does that make sense? 
And I realized that you can change just like you can change the way you view your childhood. There are actually ways to change the past and really change it. I've been studying about, uh, just because I'm fascinated about um, relativity and time, and I'm working on a time traveler's handbook and creating medita- time traveling meditations. I'm really excited about it. I'm working with my brother who's an astrophysicist. But I, and, and it's exciting. We're In March, we're going to do a whole 28-day program all about you know the universe. It's going to be great. But from physics, you can, you can take off in a rocket and come back before you left. That's physics. What I realized when it comes to past lives, I mean, we can't do it because we don't have the the rocket technology, blah, blah, blah. But but it's not alien to physics. That is something that, you know, Stephen Hawking talks about that. So that you can go back into your past life. You can shift the memory. When you shift the memory, you shift the timeline and you can shift your life. So that's how I started doing past lives. And it was amazing. I had people who would be in wheelchairs who could walk after a past life regression. I had a woman who was blurring. She got her eyesight back during a past life regression. When I was in London, there was a woman who had hearing aids. She'd had them for 52 years in both ears. During the past life regression, she thought they were both malfunctioning. They both got loud. She pulled them out and she could hear. So these were not miracles. I mean, they looked like miracles. It wasn't like, oh, it was like literally going back into the past. You mow over dandelions, they come up again. But if you go to the source and you heal it at the source, you can heal it and heal it forever. So out of that, came past life regressions. And I'm probably more known for past life regressions in the 25 countries I've taught than anything else. And I do it because it works, because it creates results. And I'm I'm just a junkie for results. I love doing anything that creates results in people's lives. Beautiful. So the, the workshop you were doing in London that I went to where I had this experience must have been probably 15, 20 years ago. I can't remember. And I hadn't been there for the whole thing. And you said, come and come round and pop in. And there was about a hundred, maybe more people that were, ju- were just going, probably more, going down into lying on the floor and going into this altered state that you're so brilliant about the way you take people in. And nowhere did you mention anything about Jesus energy, Christ energy generally, the Virgin Mary, nothing. You didn't say anything about that. You just had some music on and I can't even remember what you were saying. And as I went into this altered state, and I don't always see things, I'm not very visual in that place, I saw without any question the Virgin Mary, like a statue in a blue dress. I don't know if you remember, I couldn't get over it. I still haven't got over it. It was a long time ago. And a sort of white sort of snood. And she was in front of me and she didn't open her mouth, but she looked at me with this incredible compassion, which just moved me so much. And I'm a Jewish Buddhist. And here I was having a chat with the Virgin Mary and um, I heard her inside me say, you have work to do. You have work to do. You have a lot of work to do. It is your time. You are here for a reason. And and there was more, but I just came and slowly came back as you brought the room back into um, the moment again. It was so deeply entrenched in my DNA of this experience. I've never, ever got over it. And when I asked about it, people all over the room had had experiences. They were with Jesus. They had this whole Christ energy had been in this room. We were not in a church. We were in some kind of community hall. And people all over from all different backgrounds that had, not all of them, but a number of them had this extraordinary experience as we were in this altered state that you put us in you know just 
using your voice, using your words, using the music. And and I I'm, I know you do it all the time. I mean, I'm going on about one experience I had, but you are doing this with people all the time. And you are a channel and a vehicle for bringing people into the light. There is absolutely no question about it. Um, just by be, working with you and being with you, even when you don't even see it, and I know you're your worst critic, um, you change people's vibration. You change them in such a deep way. And I just really want to honor you for that and thank you for that. Um, because it's incredible work, these thousands of people, because you say you, you've taught people who are now teaching. You have been this catalyst for so many people who are now themselves leaders and taking change. And as we come to that point, I want to talk about the change. But you've recently, well, in the last couple of years, become a grandmother. I've been a grandmother for a while. And I think that's also something that affects us, changes in a way, don't you think? It's how we start thinking of the generations to come and we want a world for our grandchildren to grow up in and their children and their children's children. If you could envision how we could be living as we go through this portal, as we go into a more spiritual consciousness, as we vibrate at a higher rate and we do see science and spirituality coming together, because I think that's absolutely the way it was thousands of years ago in Egyptian times. How could you see the world? Well, how's it going to look like? First of all, could you tell me what you see? I do see women taking more leadership roles. I do see it being about community, small communities, small communities linking with bigger communities. I do see the systems we have now breaking down, thank goodness, because they, it is time for whether it be political, economic, um, in every way, the systems have to go. We do need the technology to stay connected with each other. But at the same time, it really is that think local, act global, so that we share our stories, we share our experiences, we support and learn from each other. We use this circular economy, which is helping the planet, not taking from the planet. In every way, for me, it's about how we can, on a practical level, bring our values, our spiritual vision into reality and the chance we have now. That's how, you know, I think it's very practical, very pragmatically in a way. You know, here in my little town where I live, I see the people that are already have ended up living here at the same time as me, who are turning this into a sustainable community here. And this is a wonderful town. That's how I see it. Many years ago, I spent time in Africa with a man named Credo Mutwa. And Credo Mutwa is the spiritual head of all Zulu. He's a Senoma Sengusi. We would say, uh, you know, uh, a witch doctor, I guess is what, you know, Caucasians would say. But a Sengomi Sengusi is a spiritual head and a healer. He is one of the most remarkable human beings I've met. And I was with him in Bokutaswana in his home, which was this literally a mud shack with a packed mud floor. And he's wearing animal skins and big, big stone kind of necklaces. And this man who never had any formal education, any, any language that anyone had come and visit him, he would start speaking in that language. And when I told, which was amazing. And he had this amazing connection to, collective unconsciousness. And when he said, when I told him I was part Cherokee, he said, oh, it's interesting about the Cherokee language. Now, this is a man who never had formal education. He's living in a grass hut or a mud hut. And he said, you have some similar words. And he said, for example, your word adoda. Well, the word adoda in Cherokee means father. He goes, we have that same word, adoda. And he went on this whole discourse about the, the connection between the Cherokee language and the Zulu language. So this is someone 
who was tapped in. At one point he jumped and I said, you know, Credo, what's wrong? And he said, the fridge just detonated that underground bomb and he felt it in his body. So he was connected to the consciousness of the planet. He talked about the future and he said, there will come a time of great change and it will be the women. And he said, look to the time. And I, I can't remember exactly when 52 heads of government are women. I, I, I should go look up my notes because he said so many profound things. But he said, when that comes, it, the time of the women has emerged and there will be a, a complete transformation of the consciousness of the planet. He said, it will be the women who bring it about. So this man who was so tapped into collective unconsciousness, so psychic, talked about the time of the women, the women being a time of returning to the intuitive, returning to the collective, where, you know, in the hunter-gatherer, the hunter, he sees his game, he goes for his game, he competes against the other hunter because he's got to get the game. That kind of the, the patriarchal times to moving into the matriarchal times. Let's go together to find where the roots are. Let's support each other in taking care of the children. They're two different cosmologies, not that one's bad or one's good, but we've been so long in this patriarchal um, tradition of competitive and get the job done. And we are moving into this time of that female energy. And to me, it feels like the saving energy of the future. You know, the wisdom has been there um, for many centuries that this time was coming. You know, the, the, the ancient people and the ancient cultures have seen this time coming. And now we're here and it's a real, I feel it's a real honor to be alive in this moment um, and to be one of the wisdom keepers, one of these women here who will be moving forward to create. And we will create it by, by holding the vision. That's the most important thing. And at, at this moment, I feel it's a good time to ask you to lead us into a meditation if you're ready to do that. All right. Well, let's do a meditation. And I love doing meditations because it kind of takes us into that soulful place. And let's do this meditation for the solstice. And even if you're listening to this after the solstice and the inner realms, we can, you can go backward and forward in time. You'll be able to access the solstice energy, even if it's a month down the road. So don't think, oh, it's past. I can't do it. Yes, you can. Because when you step into the inner realms, time is fluid. It, it ebbs and flows and ripples. And so just take yourself to that time. So if you would join me in taking a very deep breath and allowing your eyes to close and take just a moment to tune in to what you're feeling and experiencing it right now. What is real? right now what are you feeling emotionally it's not bad it's not good it's just simply the truth what is the truth allowing it to be scan your physical body what is the truth how are you feeling right now what is real it's not bad. It's not good. It's simply the truth. Breath in, breathing in, 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 and exhale. And with every exhalation, 
you can feel your shoulders dropping. With every exhalation, you can feel those muscles in your forehead relaxing. With every exhalation, you're aware of your thoughts just beginning to drift and float. The way thoughts drift and float on a warm summer afternoon, letting go. You are safe, letting go, surrendering. You are not surrendering to something outside of yourself. You are surrendering to spirit within. You are surrendering to the divinity within. You are surrendering to that secret, sacred place within, the resting place of your soul. Everything else is dropping away. You are safe. That's good. So very, very relaxed. In your mind's eye now, imagine yourself someplace where you feel safe. Someplace that feels good. For some, it's along a tropical seashore. For others, a high vantage point on a mountain or in a meadow or by an alpine lake. For some, it's a log cabin in the woods with the fire roaring and the soft, comfortable chair. For others, it might be a high plateau on a warm night under the stars. Find some place in your imagination that feels good, that feels safe. And imagine yourself, visualize yourself there. Don't be concerned if you're not visual. Just get a sense or a feeling of this place. And as you do, no matter where you are, you place your awareness on the stars, on the heavens. Even if you're indoors, you can still place your awareness on the heavens. You are a part of a loving universe. There is a star that is your star. You have a place in the universe. And in this moment, you can sense and feel your awareness expand. Expanding into the earth. Expanding out in all directions. And expanding up to the stars. It's as if you can hear the songs of the stars. One great, beautiful celestial symphony. It's as if the symphony is emerging within you. You are a part of this symphony, of this chorus. Your cells are singing. You can sense the cadence and the rhythm of the earth beneath you. You can sense and feel that rhythm 
expanding within you. You are at the intersection between above and below, between the light and the dark, between spirit and form. We approach a remarkable time in the linear history of our planet. You are ready. In no small way, you have prepared for this time. It is the ending of one great cycle and the beginning of another. There is power in beginnings. In this moment, as you approach this time, you can sense and feel your heart opening, your spirit expanding, and as if a shimmering, sparkling ray of light from the heavens cascaded down and over you and down into the earth. You can sense and feel this radiance, this shimmering, sparkling light ebbing and flowing and spiraling into each and every cell in your body. Sense it, feel it, imagine it, and be willing to let go of all that does not serve you. You might say, I've had these beliefs for a long time. I've had these patterns and habits for a long time. That perhaps is true. It is also true that there is an opportunity to simply allow them to drop away. The way leaves drop from the tree in the autumn. You are ready. You would not be here now, listening here now, except that you are ready. As the phoenix rises from the fire, the dross has burned away. You are starting a new cycle. Who do you desire to be? What do you desire to feel? Get the sense of who you are emerging into. What you are emerging into. For in this moment, you are planting a seed at this remarkable time in linear history. A seed for your future. A seed for your destiny. A seed for your life ahead. A seed that will allow you to be a force for good in the months and years ahead. Once that seed is planted, it will take root. It will branch and sprout, flower and bear fruit for the years ahead. More and more, you accept who you are with gentle kindness and love. More and more, you're open to the voice of spirit. More and more, you know that you make a difference in our beautiful and needful planet. May the Creator within all things bring blessings and peace. So be it. And so it is. And gently and easily, you can begin bringing yourself back to normal waking awareness.
I hope you are as affected by Denise's incredible meditation as I have been. I would like to suggest that we use this as our inspiration for the unique seed exercise that goes with this podcast and take a conscious decision to practice meditation on a regular basis. It manifests, it keeps us calm, it centers us and it gives us vision. So why not make a promise to yourself to bring in some form of stillness and meditation on a daily basis? Thank you so much for listening and taking part. Remember, we will be putting up episodes every two weeks of Frankly Speaking, and I really hope to have you back with us again. If you like what you hear and want to learn more practical methods to help you plant the seeds in your own empowerment journey, then please subscribe to this podcast, rate it and review. Also, make sure to join our Seed Network if you haven't already, and together with thousands of like-minded women, you will find friends, promote your business and share your stories. Visit seednetwork.com and find out more. Until then, I'll see you next time. Bye.